Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Greetings, everyone. Uh, my name is Yuna Chabri. I teach in the departments of English, Drama, and Environmental Studies at NYU. And I'm currently the director of XE, the Graduate Program in Experimental Humanities and Social Engagement. I'm delighted to be here today to introduce my colleague, my dear friend, my fellow animal obsessive, and one of my very favorite writers, Charles Siebert. Charles, who is a professor of creative writing at NYU Abu Dhabi, is the author of three critically acclaimed memoirs, The Wachula Woods Accord Towards a New Understanding of Animals, A Man After His Own Heart, and Wickerby, An Urban Pastoral, which was a New York Times notable book. Uh, Charles is also a poet, novelist, journalist, and many of you will know him as one of America's leading essayists with 14 cover stories for the New York Times Magazine, where he's a contributing writer, as well as for other prestigious cultural publications like The New Yorker, Harper's Magazine, Vanity Fair, and National Geographic. Charles's writings have been and continue to be one of the forces behind the growing consciousness in American society about the complex, vital, and increasingly urgent relationship between human beings and the myriad other species with whom we share the planet. Like many others, Charles's interest in this subject was first sparked by the kinds of animals that have long thrilled and attracted us humans. The great apes, the whales, the elephants, animals sometimes called charismatic megafauna. But Charles's profound empathy and compassion along with his keen reporter's eye, his instinctive and generous ethics, and his vibrant writing style have always given us not only rich and satisfying encounters with these animals, but also unusually revealing views of the worlds they must contend with today. Worlds of our making, not theirs, and often cruel, shameful worlds. By attending to the deep entanglements of these animals' lives with the anthropocentric values, self-serving fantasies, and willful blindnesses of our species, Charles's writing about animals has grown increasingly expansive and what I call ecospheric, extending from the megafauna to the microscopic, even the viral revealing the vast web of connections that links all life on our precious planet. Last year, Charles was honored by being appointed as a distinguished fellow at the Wesleyan University College of the Environment. Charles's writing has always opened hearts and minds. Now it also changes the world. His most recent New York Times cover story about the importation of African elephants, 18 African elephants, by three U.S. zoos helped drive the recent passage of a new resolution by CITES uh, pro prohibiting 
the future import of wild elephants for zoo exhibit. The article also made him a persona non grata at American zoos, as he discovered when he was commissioned to write an article for the Smithsonian Magazine and found that the National Zoo in Washington wouldn't consent to an interview with him. As you will see today, that was their loss. Any opportunity to talk with and listen to Charles Siebert should not be missed. Over to you, Charles. Thank you, Una, so much for that. And thank you to the Institute for inviting me to talk. Uh, I thought I'd kick off with a, uh, a good old fish story. What better way um, to start? Uh, but it's not your standard fish story. A, a, uh, this was related in an email by a retired uh, neuroscientist who lives outside of Lisbon. And uh, he went into his backyard one day to feed his <clears throat> two comet goldfish um, that he keeps in a pond in the back. And he found one of the goldfish writhing in the grass. Uh, it had leapt out. Goldfish tend to do this. Um, scientists don't even quite understand why. They think it might be a buildup of ammonia in the water or just restlessness over confinement, whatever. The uh, gentleman picked up the goldfish and put it back in the pond, and it promptly sank to the bottom, probably suffering from hypoxia, a lack of oxygen, a sustained lack of oxygen. But the goldfish was still alive. Um, and it just sort of lay there at the bottom. When he next went out to do the usual feeding of the fish, the feed just floated on top of the water and the healthy goldfish ate. But he was then stunned and amazed to watch the healthy goldfish dive down at one point, put its body under the body of his struggling fellow goldfish and raise him up to the top so that he might eat as well. I really don't know what to make fully of that story, but it, it, it suggests to me something about um, empathy and the strains of it that run through all creatures. And I will touch on that subject later on, um, but that story just had such resonance for me and speaks to, um, speaks to the fact that there's a lot going on out there. There are a lot of languages and a lot of exchanges that are no less uh, profound uh, for being uh, incomprehensible to us. And we need to be attuned to that. So I don't have the answer to what on earth are they saying. I just know that a lot is being said that we need to be better empathic listeners to. Um, stories like I was talking to Una the other day. The scientists had just learned that zebra finches, zebra finch mothers, sing songs to their eggs. And depending on what song the mother chooses, it shapes the size of their chicks. So in other words, in a time of intense drought and heat, a certain song will have that chick grow smaller so it's better able to tolerate heat. Um, uh, things like Starlings, which I wrote a little essay about for the New York Times uh, recently, a few months back. Starlings, I hear them all the time. That's actually my fire escape in Brooklyn, and they land and let out with the most elaborate, complex soliloquies that I've just been beguiled by for so long. 
And it's no surprise to me that scientists recently did a study of starling speech and language to better understand the origins of human language. So these kinds of synchronies and homologies um, um, happen again and again. A recent study, for example, a new study of humpback whales uh, revealed that humpback whales have regional dialects. And when they, another whale uh, pod of humpbacks passes through that region, they'll pick up the accent of, of those uh, humpbacks. Um, and so you'll know where those whales have been. It's sort of like um, the accents of in the Brooklyn neighborhood, which you'll see shortly where I grew up. Um, so again, all these homologies and the deeper connections, it just so happens. And Nuna and I were talking about this the other day. She said, what are you working on now? And it, it just so happens that for years I've been working on a book about viruses. And now here we are uh, being held hostage by, um, by one. But the larger takeaway of the book is that we wouldn't be here without viruses. Viruses are not just derivative and parasitic. They're formative. Um, it's rather like worth a big headline in my mind. So there's a way in which our mother is also potentially our murderer, but we wouldn't even have the opportunity to be infected by a virus if viruses had never happened in bioevolutionary time. So um, this stuff turns my head around, but it, it's... Uh, it's, it's um, it's what we need to be attuned to. Um, speaking of Brooklyn, uh, brief biographical aside. So in this middle row house is where I grew up, one of seven children um, and, uh, uh, and two parents. So that's nine people in a little uh, like railroad car. Um, the closest I came to wild animals in Brooklyn was my Sicilian mother, um, who I distinctly remember running from the back kitchen with pots of boiling water to vanquish the ant's nest that would grow on the stoop out front and the sidewalk. How I ended up hanging out in the wild with non-humans is a, a long story, uh, which maybe we can get to in the uh, Q&A. Um, I'm, often, I'm often asked uh, what like the overarching theme of my writing are and, uh, is, or, and, 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 and I, I thought about it and I think one that comes up again and again is uh, the inability of human beings to see ourselves as animals and to see animals as themselves, as individuals outside of the constraints of our allegories and our symbolizing and our showcasing as in zoos. Um, there's a classic example of this uh, kind of uh, inability to see animals for themselves. This is a uh, famous painter by uh, painting by Rembrandt called The Anatomy Lesson that you may recognize. Um, the, the man conducting the lesson is Nicholas Tull, um, who in the mid-18th century was a leading figure of the Enlightenment, um, head surgeon and anatomist in, in, in Amsterdam, um, and also the mayor of Amsterdam. Um, and, uh, you know, a major proponent of of, of um, enlightenment thinking, which is to say objective representation and observation of the real world. Um, at one point during his tenure as mayor and head anatomist, um, a chimpanzee, they believed to be the first chimpanzee to ever arrive to Europe's shore, showed up at the docks of The Hague. And it was promptly, I think about that all the time, what the reaction of the people of The Hague might have been 
seeing the first chimpanzee, this very human-like um, um, uh, creature, uh, which was quickly whisked away to the private menagerie of the Prince of, of, of the Netherlands, where, wherein um, Nicolaus Tulp sat from day to day and drew this, this new arrival. And uh, after days and days of, bright, of, of, of sketching, this is what he came up with, uh, which I think you'll agree bears absolutely no resemblance to a chimpanzee. Um, and what um, it looks sort of like a drunken forest nymph um, uh, sitting on a bench um, with the pointed, tapered fingers and feet. And uh, what's interesting about this is this, this image used exactly to ancient mythology, uh, mythological conceptions of, of uh, non-human primates. They were considered to be cautionary tales of uh, uh, satyrs of the forest, rapists of women, um, um, a way we could go if we didn't um, uh, maintain our civilized ways. So here is a man of science who refused to let his hands draw and depict uh, what his eyes were seeing, but instead drew the myth. Um, uh, we, we tend to think that that's a relic of the past and that we're no, no longer um, um, would, would, would distort in such a fashion. But then, you know, meet this fellow. This, this is uh, a chimp named Roger. Uh, he was a cellist in an all-chimp orchestra at Ringling Brothers Circus um, uh, for 10 years, and then he was retired, and he ended up in a roadside zoo. And fortunately for, fortunately for Roger, um, he did finally wind up in a, in a nice uh, rendition of captivity in a place called um, the Center for Great Apes in Wachula, Florida, uh, run by a woman named Patty Reagan, and she takes in um, former entertainment uh, chimps. So her whole compound is filled with former chimp movie stars and, and uh, stars of commercials and what, what have you, and circuses like Roger. I, come, I went to this place in the course of doing a story for the New York Times about chimps in captivity in the United States, both uh, research lab chimps and former entertainers. And Roger, for some reason, took this very, very strong response to me. Patty Reagan was quite taken aback. Um, it was as if he knew me from somewhere. And um, my response to this was to ask <laughs> if I could move in with Roger. Um, I remember that phone call with my wife. Honey, I'm moving in with a chimpanzee. Um, uh, but I did. And I lived with Roger for three weeks, uh, not in his cage, but um, Patty Reagan gave me a cottage on the uh, grounds of her place, and I just went every day and sat with Roger and ended up writing a book about my days with him. Uh, that, that's called the Wachula Woods Accord. But in the course of my time with Roger, I also read of another chimp, a more modern chimp that was distorted by uh, human uh, uh, perceptions, the, the bars that bar our perception. And th that's a chimp named Lucy. And you may have heard her story. I've, I've talked about it on the radio and wrote about it in Wachula Woods Accord, but it's a pretty extraordinary tale. Uh, Lucy was taken from her mother's side at uh, first day one and raised by Maurice and Jane Temerlin, a psychologist couple from the University of Oklahoma. Um, and they raised Lucy as their own daughter. Um, this was considered a cutting edge experiment that was commenced in the 1970s and it was a big big phenomena i mean lucy was on television shows 
Johnny Carson, all the late night talk shows. And she learned, um, uh, was taught sign language, learned all uh, like well, well over 150 um, different signs and uh, was brought up completely as a human being. This is Lucy a little older with a vanity mirror. Um, uh, this was an entirely enculturated chimpanzee, never met another chimp for her whole life in captivity, in captivity or in domesticity, as we say. And most people who try things like this with you know, people who get chimps, young chimps as pets, give up after a year or two because the chimps grow very strong and willful and they're quite a headache. But the Tamerlans somehow managed to keep Lucy for 11 years. Um, I talked with Jane Goodall not too long ago about Lucy because she went and met Lucy. And I asked Jane if it's true, the story I heard about Lucy making herself cocktails and sitting at the family table when, with knives and forks. And she said, absolutely. She, she was sitting on the couch one day and she saw Lucy come downstairs from her upstairs bedroom, open the ki kitchen cabinet, mix herself a vodka tonic, and then sit down on the sofa and open National Geographic magazine and start flipping through the pages. Um, and as Lucy grew um, older uh, and uh, became more hormonally driven, she found um, uh, inventive things to do with uh, the vacuum cleaner and um, her uh, quote unquote considerate uh, father, uh, uh, who used to refer to Lucy as his daughter, um, would buy her Playgirl magazines so that Lucy could um, sit on the centerfold um, and entertain herself that way. Um, so uh, you can see ju just how uh, how enculturated this chimp began, I mean, became. But finally, at age 11, they decided that it was time to make a decision and find a new home for Lucy. And of course, this presented quite a problem. What do you do with your quote unquote chimp daughter? A zoo was out of the question. Research lab, of course, not in uh, a consideration. And then they heard about a, a, a jungle facility in Africa where chimps like Lucy or somewhat like her would get a chance to maybe rewild. And the Timberlands decided that this would be the fate for Lucy, the teacher to be let her go be a wild chimp after 11 years in captivity. And uh, for this enterprise, this second act of hubris after the first one of trying to raise a chimp as a human being. And then what I think about that is like, here's a scientist, the scientist Nicolaus Tulp tried to move a chimp back to what we used to think of them as. And here's a scientist trying to move a chimp into a, a human being by, by just surrounding her with human things, which was so... Um, benighted and, and uh, uh, dim-witted, but, but all meant with good intentions. So anyway, they send Lucy to Africa and they send their intern, Janice Carter, to go be with Lucy and help her make the transition. And I, I just want to read to you an excerpt from uh, my book explaining what happened with, with, with this um, uh, attempt at transitioning Lucy. The plan was for Carter to accompany Lucy and Marion another captive-born chimp, to a temporary holding facility in a small forest reserve near Banjul, the capital of the Gambia, to help Lucy get acclimated to her new environment. After three weeks, Carter was to return home to the United States. Lucy, however, became deeply depressed 
and came down with a number of illnesses. And Carter soon found herself extending her stay for longer and longer periods. In the end, Carter wound up staying at the reserve outside Banjul for three years, taking on seven other former captive chimps in that time. Then, in the spring of 1979, she moved all nine of her charges 200 miles inland to one of five baboon islands along the Gambia River, thus setting in motion one of the odder episodes ever recorded in the, histories of, in the history of interspecies relations. To facilitate the chimp's transition back to nature, Carter resorted to a radical gesture. She had a group of British commandos who were training on the island build for her a big wire enclosure. She then took her few possessions, moved into the enclosure, and locked the chimps out. She would become, in effect, the captive that her chargers once were, so that they might discover the free wild beasts they were never allowed to be. From the beginning, Carter wrote, the chimps would have to accept that I alone lived in a cage. Carter, especially at the beginning, did make frequent instructive forays into the surrounding jungle to school the chimps, climbing trees and foraging for food, eating everything from figs to ants, living, she wrote, more as a chimpanzee than as a human. She even built herself a treetop platform to sleep on at night by way of encouraging the chimps to build their own nest. The seven chimps she had inherited were all wild-born and so had some survival skills. Marion, meanwhile, had been in the company of other chimps for much of her life in captivity and was therefore able to integrate with the others and copy what they were doing. Lucy, however, approached matters quite differently. As the largest of the nine chimps on the island and the only one who could converse with Carter in sign language, Lucy was yet another evolutionary anomaly that only we humans could fashion, the dominant chimp of her group and yet the one least capable of surviving on her own. She insisted on drinking water as Carter did from a bottle and not from the river. While the other chimps would be at the top of a baobab tree foraging for food, Lucy would steadfastly refuse to climb, positioning herself instead at the base of the tree and waiting for edible morsels to fall. Carter writes of one instance when Lucy asked her in sign language for help getting food from a tree. Carter tried to show her a quick way up the tree from an adjacent one, but Lucy took Carter by the hand, put that hand against the tree trunk, and then signed, more food, Janice, go. Carter eventually decided to retreat to her enclosure, stop all communication with Lucy, and leave her to find food on her own. A standoff ensued, Lucy positioning herself outside Carter's cage, refusing to move growing more and more emaciated all the while. She'd whine and pluck her hair out and occasionally sign, food, drink, drink, Janice, come out, Lucy's hurt. When Carter tried to shoo, shoo her away, Lucy would go a short distance off, then slowly make, make her way back to the side of the cage again. This went on for months, Carter reports, and then one day she and Lucy, exhausted from their struggle, fell asleep beside one another. When Carter awoke, she found Lucy sitting up now on the other side of the enclosure, offering Carter a leaf through the bars. Carter ate some and gave the rest to Lucy, and from that point on, Carter says, Lucy finally began to fend for herself 
gradually, gradually regaining her health and her strength. In 1985, six years after setting up her Bamboo Island camp, Carter decided it was time to leave Lucy and the others to their own devices. Lucy had by then seemingly made a successful transition to her new surroundings. She even adopted an orphaned baby chimp and then managed to overcome her grief when that baby died of a stomach parasite three years later. She also survived her own near-fatal bout of hookworm, and by the time of Carter's departure, was in good physical health and showing positive signs of social interaction with the other chimps. And yet for Lucy, as Carter would learn in the course of a subsequent visit to the island by boat from her new base camp downriver, the boundary between Lucy's former life and her rightful natural place in the world would remain forever contentious and confused. There's a photograph from that visit of Carter, one that's almost too fraught to look at. Sorry if it's a little blurry, but Janice um, allowed me to have this photo, which is very close to her. This was taken in 1986, some six months after Carter's initial departure from the island. Carter had just pulled her boat ashore, and Lucy, always the first to greet any human visitor to the island, rushed out of the jungle to her old friend's side. The two of them sit clutching one another by the waters of the Gambia River, a wall of jungle rising behind them, each of them outcast of their original selves, like two primates, you might say, passing in the night. Carter, the classic American suburban girl, looking more attuned now to jungle living, than her suburban-raised, humanized chimp counterpart. Lucy's head bowed against Carter's chest as though in mortification, her long left hand furled against her face beneath a mournful, downcast brow. Carter had brought with her some of Lucy's possessions from the past, pens and papers, books, a doll, a hat, and a mirror. Lucy, she told me, gave them only a cursory look before standing, looking back at Carter and then walking off into the jungle. A year later, Lucy's skeleton, minus the hands and feet, would be found on the ground of Carter's former camp near the site of her old wire enclosure. There were no indications of her having suffered a fall or an attack from another animal. One possible scenario of her end, given the missing hands and feet and skin, is that Lucy, still drawn more to people than to members of her own species, approached in greeting a group of poachers who readily seized upon their over-eager prey. Um, I'm in touch with Janice and have been for years um, and have been thinking seriously if she lets me to write a biography of her. Um, she's still there in the jungle 33 years later. So I thought of calling the book The Woman Who Fell Out of Time because she just has stayed trying to help chimpanzees recover, I mean, uh, uh, trying to save chimpanzees, what's left of them uh, in uh, Western Africa from extinction. Um, this next slide is of a beast you'll recognize, the 747 uh, jumbo jet. This uh, is the plane that was, quote unquote, secretly uh, dispatched to um, Swaziland by three U.S. zoos um, to uh, co-opt 18 elephants, the piece that Una referred to in her introduction that came out this, um, last summer. Um, and it, it's a long story, but I'll make it short. Basically, 
uh, the zoos had applied for a permit for, to import these elephants. They were granted that permit by Fish and Wildlife. Uh, but then uh, a lawyer interceded uh, on, on behalf of an animal rights group and got the uh, import blocked um, for a pending trial to uh, for have a judge decide whether the issuance of that permit was legal. Uh, the zoos um, and their attorneys agreed to the trial, but nine days, and they'd set a date, but nine days before the set trial date, the uh, zoos just decided perhaps um, because they suspected they might lose the case to, to dispatch this airplane and take the elephants anyway. Um, I would uh, go to Swaziland to um, ask every ask around uh, to reporters and others um, about that day and what happened and to get a look at this very airport where it landed. The airport is so small in the middle of nowhere, uh, the plane was bigger than the terminal at the airport. And these, these are actual shots taken by a photographer of them loading um, the elephants in the crates. Those crates are not even big enough for the elephants to lie down in. So there's one elephant in each crate. Um, and they eventually, uh, a last minute court hearing was held at midnight. Um, and I won't go into the details. It's all in the piece. But the zoos eventually won with a bit of sleight of hand and the elephants were loaded on the plane. Uh, I'm just going to read a very quick excerpt from the article um, that explains uh, about elephants being put on airplanes and elephants in general. <clears throat> Any lingering doubts about Flight 805's mission would soon be settled in a subsequent series of photographs taken by a journalist for the Times of Swaziland. In them, reflected vet reflector-vested airport workers, as well as khaki-clad veterinarians and animal handlers, are seen standing beside or directly atop flatbed transport trailers bearing large white metal shipping crates with lattices of air slats on either side, the curved outline of an elephant's back visible within each crate. In a couple of the shots, the crates too small for the inhabitants to lie down in dangle in midair as a long-armed crane lifts and lowers them to the tarmac below. The torsos and hands of the human attendants around them anxiously craning and caressing at each other's tilt and at each crate's tilt and sway, gestures of deep care within the constraint of, of an inescapably cruel act. An airborne elephant, even one with just two front feet aloft, the signature shtick of countless parades and circus acts over the ages, is a totem of torture. The earth is to elephants as the ocean is to whales. It is their medium, their world, their instrument. They migrate vast distances across it along long ago designated and culturally reinforced routes. They cover themselves in it as protection from the sun. They gather the bones of their dead herd members on it for extended and recurring mourning rituals, during which they'll caress the bones with their trunks, taking turns rubbing them along the teeth of a skull's lower jaw, the way that living elephants do when greeting one another. And perhaps most vitally, elephants communicate through the earth, play it like a tom-tom, sending and feeling multi-mile-long subsonic ground vibrations felt through exquisitely tuned sensors in the padding of their feet. A circus elephant has to be beaten into learning to adopt a bipedal pose, a newly rested wild one slated for air transport, drugged. But two front feet aloft are all 48 at 38,000 feet is equally aberrant to an elephant.
But then life for, uh, flight 805 passengers began in trauma. They were all orphans of population calls in South Africa's Kruger National Park in order to reduce herd density and make room for humans, a gruesome practice no matter the method employed. Sometimes concealed gunmen will make conspicuous sounds in order to coerce the matriarch and elder bulls to gather close around their young in easily dispatched groupings. Helicopters are often employed to herd elephants toward a waiting battery of machine guns. Matriarchs are picked off early in order to render the rest of the herd a lost and rudderless mass. One method eventually outlawed for being, quote, too inhumane, unquote, involved darting the elephants with a heart surgery sedative known as scolene, a, a neuromuscular anesthetic that was discovered to leave the paralyzed elephants fully conscious as their armed executioners approached to finish them off. In the aftermath of any culling, babies are often tethered to the bodies of their slain parents so they can be readily gathered up for translocation elsewhere. Herds a hundred miles away from such culls will scurry off, huddle, and hide. They're aware of so much elephants, it's frightening. They read remote ground rumblings, discern faraway windborne scents, and hear over vast distances subsonic cries of elephantine terror, screams beneath the register of our hearing, silent screams. Lock up in storage sheds, as park rangers will often do, pulse cull elephant parts, and body parts and other elephants will invariably come later from miles around to smash their way in and retrieve the remains in order to give them a proper burial. One night at the Makaya Wildlife Reserve in Swaziland, I asked an employee why I had seen no elephants in the course of that day's safari. I was told that they'd all been very skittish and aloof since the departure of Flight 805, even though the 18 elephants on board were taken from a entirely different Swaziland reserve, some 50 kilometers away. Um, sorry for all the downer stories, um, but this is often the case on the human, non-human fraught frontier where I um, often find myself writing. Um, this was a piece I wrote in 2006 when I first discovered what we were doing to elephants and, um, and learning via the way elephants break down just how sophisticated, exquisitely sophisticated and sens sensitive an animal they are. And it's a tragedy of human beings that we learn the sophistication of other non-humans by virtue of the way we um, break those creatures down. Um, that's more and more the um, path. We, I say often about humans, we, we suffer from a misdirected gaze we're a species that suffers from a misdirected gaze. We, we seek for um, intelligence, you know, on other planets and deliverance and in the heavens. And our deliverance should come from looking downward and inward to biology and all the all the creatures that we're related to and share the planet with, as Una said. So, yes, the answer to this question uh, in this piece in which I analyze how elephant culture and psyche is being uh, broken down by human encroachment. The answer to this question is, yes, we are driving elephants crazy. This is a zoo elephant that had to be uh, in the Dallas Zoo that had to be constantly on um, psychotropic drugs to prevent from killing uh, trainers because she was just uh, exhibiting all the classic um, um, psychosomatic symptoms of captivity. 
um, which is why I wrote my latest piece. Um, zookeepers still deny that this is true of, of the effects of captivity on elephants, but they can deny all they want. It's uh, irrefutable scientific evidence, which, as we know now under our current president, uh, is increasingly uh, trying to be scientific evidence that is uh, uh, ignored or shunted aside. Um, what, what I'm about to introduce you to now are three characters, three individuals, um, and I call them the chorus of the misconstrued. Um, this is a beluga whale um, named Nosi. I wrote a story about Nosi for uh, Smithsonian Magazine. She was one of six belugas co-opted from the waters of Hudson Bay in northern Canada uh, by the U.S. Navy. Um, to spy on Russian submarines. Um, you can't really make this stuff up, but uh, the Navy had long used dolphins for their reconnaissance work, but the Russians in the 80s started to develop submarines that could hide under the Arctic ice and dolphins can't swim in such cold water. So the Navy said, what can swim in ice cold water? And they thought belugas. And they kidnapped six from um, the Hudson Bay and brought them to San Diego to be trained to retrieve test torpedoes and um, other um, um, reconnaissance um, um, missions. Nosi was brought, a young adolescent male was brought to, to the facility in um, San Diego and was all by himself for a long period of time, surrounded only not by conspecifics, but by the, the human trainers um, who, who uh, were around him every day. Uh, belugas in the wild, uh, are known as the canaries of the, of the sea because they're highly social beings that are constantly talking to one another. Um, one uh, uh, underwater biologist uh, who recorded them in the wild said that belugas sounded like um, uh, children in a distant schoolyard screaming the, the sound of their voices, which always haunted me. Um, but here was Nosi entirely isolated from his conspecifics and had no one to talk to. Um, one day, uh, one day, Navy divers were working in the vicinity of Nosi's underwater pen um, and communicating to their officer, their commanding officer on shore through underwater walkie-talkies, uh, uh, which Nosi could hear. One day, uh, all the divers just abruptly left the water and said to their officer on the land, why did you tell us to get out of the water? And he said, I didn't say anything of the kind. And that got everyone thinking, what's going on? And they mentioned it to the head scientist. And he said, well, that's odd because we've been hearing these odd noises come from Nosi's uh, pen for some time. And uh, at one point, they decided to do an experiment and they actually took a sound recording device and inserted it in Nosi's blowhole. And he was so pliant and compliant, he allowed them to do this. So they took a recording of, this, of these sounds that Nosi was making. And this is what it sounded like. This recording went viral. Um, that word has a whole new 
meanings now um, resonance. But that's how I first heard it, and I started looking into this. And you know, and, and the reaction overall was from people was a cartoonish sort of comic one of you know, boy, it sounds like he's playing a gazoo. Isn't that cute? And what they found out when they did the analytic studies of of of, of these outpourings where they were not whale at all. They were exactly the octave, the resonances, all the, the tenors and tones and, and frequencies of human speech. And so here was an example of a social creature so deprived um, of, of its uh, conspecifics that it, it resorted to speaking the language of its captors. Uh, another example of this is um, an elephant named Koshik who um, I'll speak more of in the next excerpt that I'm going to read. Koshik, uh, similarly to the story of um, Nosi, Koshik was kept for seven years at the Neverland Zoo in Korea uh, by himself and had only humans around him. And he fashioned a way to uh, uh, use his trunk to speak Korean words. I, I'm not going to uh, be able to show you the video, but I can play what this sounded like. These were actual Korean words. And I'll explain how he does that in, in the next excerpt. This here was a, uh, a snippet from a video. Um, Robbie Kenner, the Academy Award-nominated uh, documentary filmmaker, did a documentary based on my story of, about this uh, sanctuary in Los Angeles where a traumatized orphaned um, um, uh, pet parrots and traumatized war veterans um, actually heal one another through day-to-day -day contact. Um, I, I've long been fascinated by this place, and the New York Times finally gave me the go-ahead to write about it. And after the piece came out, Robbie Kenner um, uh, bought the rights and did the documentary. But um, this is just a side clip that never even made it into the documentary. But it int introduces you to a parrot named Julius um, who was kept, another case of a Korean, he was kept by a Korean doctor for years, and he learned how to speak Korean, although you don't, Hear Korean in this case, you hear um, just him uh, being Julius. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. Woo! <laughs> 
What? <laughs> what do you think? Um, I I think you can glean uh, from that um, why I would want to be at that sanctuary every day for an entire summer uh, or as many days as I could get there. Uh, There's something so intoxicating about being in the presence um, of this winged intelligence, the direct descendants of dinosaurs, um, and to be surrounded by that. But of course, there's nothing cute about Julius and Funny when you know the story of, of him and, and um, his fellow parrots that are all there in the same way that there's nothing funny about all the trauma suffered by the um, soldiers that work with those parrots. So I'm just going to read you um, a couple, two excerpts from that piece. Um, Abandoned parrots are twice traumatized beings, denied first their natural will to flock, and then the company of the humans who own them. In the wild, parrots ply the air mostly, in the same way that whales do the sea, together and intricately. Long-time pairs fly wing to wing within extended, close-knit social groupings, in which the individual members scientists have recently discovered each have unique names. Parrots learn to speak them soon after birth, during a transitional period of vocalizing, uh, vocalizing equivalent to human baby babbling known as subsong, in order to better communicate with members of their own flock and with other flocks. This, it turns out, is the root of that vaunted gift for mimicry, which along with their striking plumages and beguilingly fixed wide-eyed stares, has long induced humans to keep parrots, neuronally hardwired flock animals with up to 60 to 70 year lifespans, and the cognitive capacities of four to five-year-old children all to ourselves locked in a parlor cage, a broken flight of human fancy, a keening kidnappee. There were 34 parrots at Serenity Park when I was there last summer, a majority of them abandoned and now deeply traumatized former pets that had outlived either their owners, um, uh, patients, outlived either their owners or their owners' patients, A parrot separated from its flock will flock fully and fiercely to the attentions and affections of its new human keeper. And when that individual, for whatever reason, fails to uphold his or her end of such an inherently exclusive relationship, the effects are devastating. That's the cover of the story I wrote, and that's some of the parrots. Up and down the Avery Line corridor of Serenity Park are the wing wreckages of such broken bonds. On and on they go, the ceaseless pacing, rocking and screaming, the corner cowering, self-plucking, and broken record remembrances of their past owners. Hey, sweetheart. Oh, well, come on, man. And yet, at Serenity Park, the very behaviors that once would have further codified our parrot caricatures, bird brain, mindless mimicry, mere parroting, and so on, are not only recognized as classic symptoms of the same form of complex post-traumatic stress disorder affecting the patients in the Veteran Administration Medical Center just up the hill, they're also being seized upon as a source of mutual healing for some of the most psychologically scarred members of both species. 
The problem with parrots is that they're so intensely attuned. Lauren Lindner, the psychologist who founded Serenity Park, told me one afternoon as we stood watching Julius pace back and forth speaking in Korean. Parrots have so many social neurons. Their brain is filled with a capacity to mirror their flock. It's so crucial for survival in the wild to be able to know what the flock is doing, to know what the danger signs are, when they have to get together, when night is falling and they are called to roost. They're so attuned to being socially responsive that they can easily transfer that to us. They have the ability to connect, to feel this closeness with another being, another species. Listening to Julius that day reminded me of a story I had read not long ago in the journal Current Biology about a 22-year-old male Asian elephant named Koship that resides at the Everland Zoo in Yongin, South Korea. Separated from the two female Asian elephants he was raised with in captivity, Koship lived alone at Everland Zoo for seven years, a period which he, he construed away during which he construed a way of speaking perfectly intelligible Korean words by sticking his trunk in his mouth and then using his tongue to shape his own plosive trumpetings into the language of the zoo's keepers and local visitors. Such vocal learning, the researchers who wrote the paper concluded, isn't an attempt to directly communicate with us so much as it is a way for a highly social species like the elephant to cement social bonds via the only other species available. It's one of those unlikely natural outcomes of the so-called Anthropocene, the first epoch to be named after us, the prolonged confinement of intelligent and social creatures compelling them to speak the language of their imprisoners. And now in yet another unexpected turn, parrots, among the oldest victims of human acquisitiveness and vainglory, have become some of the most empathic readers of our troubled minds. Their deep need to connect is drawing the most severely wounded and isolated PTSD sufferers out of themselves. In an extraordinary example of symbiosis, two entirely different outcasts of human aggression, war and entrapment, are somehow helping each other to find their way again. Um, I'm going to end on this last excerpt because it comes back around to that question of empathy. Um, that I brought up with the story of the goldfish. Uh, and the theme of empathy and its, um, its presence uh, in us and in non-humans and what it is and what it emanates from and how woundable it is and it runs through all of my work, I think, or a lot of it. And one of the things that blew me away at this sanctuary was the fact that uh, the parrots... Uh, Parrots would pick out certain vets and bond with them, and often they would seize upon the vet that had been wounded in a similar way that the parrot had. So without any you know, verbal communication about it, there was this sort of empathic outreach um, uh, that was going on there that just uh, was very hard to find a way to convey, um, but it, it was one of the driving impulses behind the story. So this is how the piece really closes. We often think of empathy as a skill rather than the long-ago neuronally ingrained bioevolutionary tool for survival that it actually is. The ability, the ability to inhabit the feelings of fellow beings, the ability to feel, for example, their fear over a, a threat 
or thrill over a newly found food source or sorrow over a loss, which has as much to do with uniting the fabric of a community as any other emotion. Empathy in this sense can be thought of as the source of all emotion, the one without which the others would have no register. The more time I spent at Serenity Park last summer, the more I came to think in terms of the expansive anatomy of empathy and not just the shared neuronal circuitry that has now been mapped across species, from us to other primates to elephants and whales, and we now know to creatures with entirely different non-mammalian brains like crows and parrots. I thought as well of the extraordinary capacity conferred by that circuitry to recognize and respond to the specific infirmities, both psychic and physical, although those are essentially one and the same, of another species. I got a sense early on at the park of which parrots and veterans seemed most drawn to one another. The way, for example, that the lilac-crowned Amazon parrot Dagwood came to life around Jim Minnick, a former Navy helicopter crewman who did three tours of duty and suffered upper body injuries in a fall from his helicopter. But I only learned later about the true depths of such bonds. You know, Jim does a great job of hiding how wounded he was, fellow Navy veteran Matt Simmons told me. He has tattoos all over the el- his elbow that he can't use anymore, and he won't talk about it. But at one point, he was sitting on the edge of the bed with a shotgun in his mouth and tears rolling down his face. On that same night, he drove his car into a tree, drunk out of his mind. So he comes to Serenity Park, and Jim doesn't know the history of any of the birds. And which bird loved him first? Dagwood, the one with the screwed up wing and a crooked beak. There's just no way to explain it. Jason Martinez, who incurred traumatic brain injuries parachuting into Afghanistan and now suffers from epileptic seizures, was immediately sought out by Molly, an African gray parrot, the only parrot at Serenity Park he only learned later with epilepsy. And then there were the daily cheek-to-cheek murmurings between the bedraggled Goffin's cockatoo, Bobby, whose owner kept her for much of her life in a kitchen drawer and a blonde 21-year-old ex-Marine named Josh Lozen. Let's talk about Josh, Matt Simmons said. A good-looking guy with curly hair. He's a little scary. He's so broken, all of his wounds are still inside. Who gets along with him best? Bobby, mostly naked, bleeding from her remaining feathers, a bird who looks like a damn pterodactyl that went through a buzzsaw. Of all the veterans I encountered at the sanctuary, Lozen was by far the most skittish. The one time I was able to chat with him at length was when I found him early one morning atop an elevated wooden porch, one flight above a work shed, scrubbing the bars of an empty birdcage with a brush. My my decision to ascend the narrow steps that led up to him, up to the shed, effectively trapped him up there. He joined the Marines, he said, because he wanted to hurt somebody. But he received such an exceptional score on his recruitment aptitude test, he ended up in an office job working with computers, a post suited to his intellectual capacities, but not to his disposition. Sent to the VA for evaluation after frequent episodes of insubordination and erratic behavior, he was prescribed mood stabilizers and antipsychotics, neither of which he sheepishly confided he was presently taken, thanks to the healing effects of Serenity Park. 
He was not able to put into words what exactly went on between him and the parrots. All he kept saying was, it's something about the cages. Feeling his growing discomfort, I descended the stairs. Back on the ground, I looked up at Lozen, who was peacefully cooing and chirping back and forth with Coco, an Australian Adelaide Rosella parrot. He suddenly looked down at me. They're in these cages and helpless, Lozen said, and it's not their fault. He paused and I started away. But for me, he continued, I think it's also that when I'm alone with them in those cages, I don't feel I have to conform to what everyone expects of me. I'm free to be an animal again. In the late afternoon on my last day at the sanctuary, I seemed to be the only one around. I passed Coco in his cage, sounding his particular strains of the park's ongoing symphony of stranded human speech. I thought then of the numerous anecdotes people have told of wild parrot flocks learning via cultural transmission to speak the human words taught to them by reintegrated former pets. In the parks of Sydney, Australia, where there are native wild parrot flocks everywhere, people regularly overhear in a, hello, darling, or what's happening, sounding from the trees above them. The early German naturalist explorer Alexander van Humboldt wrote of encountering during his travels in South America toward the close of the 18th century, a parrot that was the last living repository of the language of the extinct Atortis Indian tribe. All alone now among the sanctuary's parrots, I got a sudden glimpse of one possible future, one long beyond us and our traumas, a world of winged dinosaurs soaring and chatting back and forth their different local dialects inflicted here and there with the occasional broken shards of a long-lost one. Hey, sweetheart. Oh, well. Whoa. Come on, man. Nearing Serenity Park's exit, I decided to turn back and step inside the quarters of the first parrot that I'd bonded with at the sanctuary, an Amazonian kaike named Cashew. I had only to nestle close to her perch, and she immediately hopped on my back, crisscrossing my shoulders as she, as she had done the first time we met. She stopped at one point and craned toward my mouth for what I assumed would be the apparent equivalent of a kiss. Instead, she began to clean my teeth, her beak slightly tapping against my enamel, the faint vibration strangely soothing. Immediately afterwards, she dropped down and took a nap in my shirt's left breast pocket. It felt as if I'd grown another heart then re-emerged and crawled up to the top of my head. She strolled about there for a time before plucking out one of her own deep blue-green feathers and then descended to gently place it on my left shoulder. I have it still. Um, that's all for the um, uh, readings and uh, sanctuary. I don't know where we are time-wise. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, we we probably have um, we only have thirty minutes left, Charles. But okay, it's up to you. If we have thirty minutes, um, uh, I just wanted to, briefly. That's my uh, wild Sicilian mother um, on the left, and uh, on the right, that's um, the, the putative mother, of possibly of all life on Earth. And uh, I'll go no further than that, as it's the subject of my novel, and I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to take away the mystery. Uh, Whatever, when it, I'm about three quarters of the way through, so when it's done, um, then you can get the answer. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for listening. I guess 
with 30 minutes, we can turn it over to uh, uh, questions. Yes. Charles, thank you so much uh, for that just fascinating, moving, wonderful talk. We already have a number of people reacting to the talk. Graham says, this was amazing. I'm so stunned. Um, we also got some questions. Uh, I invite you to uh, start adding your questions. Let me start with um, Shari's question. What do you think is the best way to redirect people's gazes towards this problem? News items often fly by. Do you think storytelling should play a bigger role in this? And uh, Charles, you might want to just stop sharing your screen. Um, stop here. There you go. Okay. Oh, uh, hello, you. <laughs> hello, Rune. Uh, uh, Hi, Charles. I, yeah, you put your finger on it. Um, uh, storytelling, storytelling, storytelling. Um, I couldn't emphasize its importance more. But I, I also make the point that um, for me personally, I began as and thought I'd remain as a poet and um, stumbled uh, rather unexpectedly into the world of writing prose and magazine prose and, um, and then having the privilege of going um, on extraordinary journeys to meet non-humans. But um, a lot of what I do um, has been allowed um, the kind of storytelling I do has been allowed by science. And um, that might sound like a paradox in some people's minds. Um, there's a conception of science that it kills mystery and, and um, is antagonistic towards story and poetry. And it's, in fact, absolutely the opposite. The reason I have um, uh, uh, felt such an affinity to science is so much of it is so poetic. But also it allows me, I use science to avoid the um, the mistake of or the specter of anthropomorphism. So I don't have to uh, conjecture about what an elephant's day is or um, a whale's day or a parrot's. I can just know, I can present to you, the reader, the complexity of their brains that is scientifically proven. And then you can, you can take it from there and analogously say, right, I don't know what a parrot's day is, but I do know a parrot has a day and that it can be wrecked, and an elephant's day can be wrecked, and a whale's day can be wrecked and ruined and, and, and wounded. Um, but also on the flip, positive side, those brains can be healed just like in the way that human uh, trauma, traumatized brains can through therapy. So there's an upside too, but we have to be attuned to what that other animal might be living through and thinking and have empathy um, and then, as you've heard in the parrot, these shared empathy can uh, produce amazing things. But yeah, so I, I just love that some of the things I say or stories I tell in my articles, I couldn't, 10 years ago, I might have been laughed out of the room. But because of science, um, I, I can just put the story out there and make you deal with it. <laughs> That's great. Um, here's another question. Uh, thank you for all your research and for sharing these moving stories with us, Professor Siebert. Based on your talk, I think you would agree we have to empathize with non-human animals and that we should not treat them as objects. Do you extend the same feeling to farmed animals, or have you researched about how they communicate? If not, 
Is that potentially an area of interest for you in the future? Um, I have done some writing about um, uh, actually the personality. Uh, I did a story, a cover story about eight cover stories back about animal personality. And at one point I got um, through a friend to um, hang with um, pigs uh, and um, and talk to another farmer about his cows. And, and they, you know, people who are around animals all the time, uh, something we're increasingly um, uh, severed from uh, uh, in, in the modern world. Um, people who are around animals all the time, you, you talk to any farmer or, or any, you know, who raises either cows or pigs, and they'll tell you each of those animals has a very, very distinct personality um, and, um, and sensitivity and sensibility. So, yes, I have, um, I have uh, dived into that aspect, the domesticated animal as well, and, and um, I'm close friends with Michael Pollan, and, uh, who's written extensively about um, you know the, the the cattle industry and and also with Chris Christopher Quinn who did the documentary Eating Animals uh, that came out recently so um, I that's a very very um, fraught area as well and needs to be so I am interested in it and needs to be further written about and and ameliorated I mean it's just horrible well, uh, the way these animals are treated it's it's, it's um, but we are at such an extreme point now. The industry itself is that reversing it is um, uh, at once necessary and 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 incredibly difficult. Um, and I'm not sure I, I'm smart enough to even know how that happens. I just know it needs to be done because it's it's inexcusable. Okay, great. Um, oh, here's a beautiful question. Uh, Joanna says, "Breathtaking, poignant, heart opener. You are." Mm-hmm. I, uh, she says, I'm, in, I'm an early years international educator. I think that means early childhood. Uh, what would you suggest um, for entrance, awareness, and empathy for our little ones? Well, not zoos. <laughs> well, that's another question, actually. We have another question here about zoos. Uh, Maybe I'll read that as well, and you can put them together. Okay. Uh, Yeze says, uh, what can you say about the fact that this world has so many zoos and ocean parks and takes these animals away from their real homes? What's your view about the purposes of these facilities? It seems so sad. Yeah, it goes to that larger question that the English novelist and philosopher John Berger uh, 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 cites, and you know, you know this essay very well, yep. called Why Look at Animals? Um, and, uh, you know, it is a question about us. What is this need that we have to, to co-opt an animal from its rightful place and, and, and have it within our, quote, unquote, rightful place civilization? Um, why do we want to keep visiting? Um, I, I think there's actually a longing there. It's not just a domination. I think we know we're a part of them and we want part of them near us in a way, but it's done without any knowledge or total disregard of, of the knowledge uh, about the uh, complexity and, and uh, of that of the captive creature and, and how they're being compromised. And there is this willful, willful, willful denial of, 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 of that kind of wounding. And I, uh, I got into it very deeply with the head of the American Zoo Association, who set up a lot of my interviews with various zoo directors, you know, who brought in these elephants. 
And, you know, to be a zoo director, you have to live in denial of the fact that elephants, for example, are um, just irreversibly psychologically damaged. It's the reason why they don't breed successfully in captivity. Uh, elephant mothers just refuse to breed. They, don't, they know intuitively that it's not a life for their babies. And often when they do give birth through forced insemination, they will stomp on and kill the baby. They'd rather kill the baby. That never has happened once in, in the wild. And there's never been an observed um, case of, of infanticide. So, so um, that's the philosophical side of like why we need to do this. But, but to address the first question, I think, I think it's, it's arrogant of me in one way to say don't take your kids to zoos because I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and I got contact with animals through zoos. I'm not saying that something can't go on there. Um, you know, maybe it depends on the wiring, you know, your own wiring. We're all different. We all feel something different. But I, I have to tell you, I, quickly, I had an incredible experience I'm, uh, traveling around the country to go to the zoos where the 18 Swaziland elephants ended up. I purposely ended the trip at Noah's Ark because I thought it would be such a surreal way to end a trip. Noah's Ark had just opened in northern Kentucky, right next door to the Creationist Museum, this absurd recreation of a biblical ark. And I walk in, it's like, you know, two and a half football fields long, seven stories high. I walk up the ramp that the quote unquote animals went in. And sure enough, on the first deck were all these you know, animatronic kind of, you know, just recreated animals in cages, dinosaurs right next door to giraffes, like that happened, right? And, and but what, what was remarkable is that I suddenly had an epiphany about what a, a new zoo should look like, because the mm. kids and the parents were all marveling at the animals. And I went, this is what you do. You don't piggyback on the suffering of a real animal. You put in animatronics, and then you show a beautiful video of the animal. And that's one way to incite awe. And then you have them read children's book. And I wrote a children's book about whales um, that I loved writing. It was, um, I was asked to do it. And I, you know, it was great because I had to gear my language toward, you know, an, an, a younger um, audience. And, and it helped me explain complex science. So through storytelling and, and lessons and talking, um, and, you know, if you can afford it, a, a trip somewhere where you know, the animals aren't being tortured. I mean, more and more that's available now. Um, cinematically we have so much computer imagery we have so much all can be inspired that way and then an actual trip to a place where you know i, I wrote a piece about the first jaguar reserve that was established in in um in belize and that's one of the stories that made me want to commit the rest of my life to writing this kind of story so there are many avenues out there outside of the horrors of um and confinements of the zoo great thank you charles um, lots more questions here. Many of them, many of the questions are curious about how you came to this topic. And uh, here's somebody who's broken it down a little bit. Um, but, you know, what brought this topic of animal injustice uh, to your attention? But others are just talking about your original, what you, why you were drawn to animals. And then um, Lujane uh, also says, what was the biggest lesson you learned from all your journeys? Um, and uh, he also says, your stories were amazing, perfectly spoken and detailed. Um, but this question of uh, what's the biggest lesson you learned and what sparked your interest to write about the connection between humans and animals? Yeah, it's, so they want your story. 
you know, we all try to fix a logical narrative to the course of our lives. And, you know, it, it was because of this or there was one trigger moment. And, and maybe there was and maybe there wasn't. I mean, maybe I always say I grew up in Brooklyn, you know, where the nearest wild animal was my mother. But at, at the same time, I, I think I, I always had a certain... Put it this way, when we went to the Bronx Zoo or the Prospect Park Zoo in, in Brooklyn, I was always the one in my family who lingered in the ape house so to have a stare down with whatever ape was being uh, held because I always just, I just felt there was a there there. You know, um, I met a beluga, a horribly confined beluga at the aquarium in, in New York in, in, uh, in Coney Island and had the same kind of bond with the beluga there. So I maybe from a young age, I was always willing to stay in the stare of a non-human and travel. Um, and that's why years later, I w asked to go live with Roger. I wanted to stay in his stare. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe I suffer from mental lethargy. I, I just, I just feel a kinship. I just feel a bond, but in terms of practical, like, you know, here I was writing poetry and I, I, th I think, you know, I, I've taught my students this all the time, you know, you have to follow your heart. And after I got my master's in poetry, my, I was publishing my poems in the New Yorker and other places. And my teacher said, you're on your way, you're on your way. Um, you've got your master's. And I said, well, no, now what do I do? And she, he said, you stay in school. There's no place in the world for a poet. And um, I was so terrified when I heard that. I just ran scared. And, and uh, I, I moved back to New York City from Houston. I, was, I got my master's in Houston because I couldn't, uh, being in school didn't seem right to me. I felt like I needed to live more. And I got a job as a, oh my God, a butcher in a steak restaurant. That's a, a different me in past. And also a job teaching writing at Sing Sing Prison. And in the middle of doing that, teaching creative writing, I asked a friend who had just gotten a job at Esquire, how do you write a magazine piece? I'd never written any journalism in my life. And he said, well, you just proposed something. Well, long story short, I proposed something. It ended up on the cover of Esquire magazine. First thing I ever wrote. And, and then they called me up one day, uh, about a year after that story came out. And they said, look, we, we have a crisis. A travel story fell through that some Bruce Chapman, famous travel story writer, it fell through. Would you, um, would, would you like to write a story for us? And I said, what? And you want me to fill in for the great Bruce Chapman? And they said, yeah. And, I, and they said, where do you want to go? And I said, do you mean in the world? <laughs> and they said, yeah. And I said, I'm going to have to call you back. But anyway, they invited me in. And here's a kid from Brooklyn, New York. They actually opened the World Atlas and said, you choose where you want to go. And I couldn't believe it as I saw my hand point to the Amazon. And the next thing I know, I was on a plane to the Amazon and had so many encounters with wild animals there. And then I wrote to Peace in Belize, in, in which I was tracking jaguars with this guy who, guess what, grew up in Brooklyn, right around the corner from me. He set up the world's jaguar preserve. And here, uh, I just, I think it was fate. I just, one day we were tracking and a jaguar came out and stared there on a road looking at us and he could have taken us in a second. And he walked back in the jungle and he just wanted to get a look at us. And I think right there I went, I want to keep do doing this. I sort of fell through a trap door of, of this other world that, that the wild is. and. I just wanted to keep falling down that trapdoor in a way um, and going down those pathways. So that's one of the that's one of the explanations and answers to that question. <laughs> um, so, Charles, a number of people have asked for just for you to say that um, the title again of the um, the article on empathy, the essay on empathy. I think that's the one with the parrots. Uh, what was the title and when? When was it published? I know it was in the New York Times. 
magazine. Right. Um, Just say the title slowly, so th because the chat is disabled, but people would really like to uh, read the article on the parrots. Yeah. It, it's um, let me get it. It's it came out in two thousand sixteen. 2016, and I think the title uh, was, hold on, What Does a Parrot Have to Tell Us About PTSD? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's I think on, it's... On the cover, it says The Parrots of Serenity Park, and the piece itself is, um, yeah, What Does a Parrot Have to Tell Us About PTSD? If you Google, okay. yeah, if you Google my name, um, that piece should come up. Yep. I'm sorry. Good. Okay, that's good. Um, another little factual question. Somebody's asking, is what the two psychologists did to Lucy, the chimp daughter, right. cruel? Cruel. Um, I, sorry, it's not a fact question. I thought she was asking if it was true. Uh, but this is, this is a question about the ethics. Sorry. Yeah. Um, they were very, very uh, in their time. Uh, considered uh, advanced and kind of um, um, forward-looking. This was considered a cutting-edge kind of um, endeavor. Um, so, but I think long view, uh, yes. I think it was in it, an act of inadvertent cruelty um, uh, and perversion. Um, but it was done, if, if it's possible to say this, um, in a kind of innocent or naive way. Um, the notion that, and, and to think that it happened as recently as it did, but really the tacit, con the conceit behind it is, you know, we can actually overcome an evolutionary divergence that, that happened so long ago and mend that disparity through just enculturation. And, you know, that is so benighted, so, so ignorant for a smart uh, um, for a psychologist, there's a book called Growing Up Human um, uh, about uh, Lucy, written by the psychologist Maurice Semerlin, who wrote this. Reading that book is one of the strangest experiences I've had in my life, um, because you're listening to a very smart sort of Freudian an an analyst um, talk in these almost nearly, well, certainly surreal, but sometimes you know, just downright bizarre uh, ways about my chimpanzee daughter and how do I find a right mate for my chimpanzee daughter? And I uh, should she be Jewish? He actually asked at one point. And uh, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's so mind-boggling. Uh, this, this book, I don't. It's back on my shelf in Abu Dhabi of all things, but uh, that's where I took some of those photos of Lucy with the vacuum cleaner. Um, so he documented this whole thing as this kind of you know, serious scientific enterprise. His wife is still alive. Um, Christopher Quinn, the documentary filmmaker, and I um, have been long planning to do a documentary about Lucy and Janice Carter. Uh, and um, Jane Temerlin is very reluctant to even talk about it anymore because I think she has a more distant perspective on it now and is sort of tired of answering questions. But yeah, I mean, for the chimp, it could have it only gone in a bad way. You know, to raise a chimp uh, for 11 years, a chimp who never saw another chimpanzee except for in a magazine and on television. Right. Um, speaking of uh, amazing 
versions of these uh, stories in which people have raised chimpanzees as children, as, as in their families. There's a wonderful, wonderful novel came out a few years ago called We Are Completely Besides Ourselves. Yes. Uh, which is told from the point of view of one of the siblings right. of uh, the, um, well, quote-unquote siblings of the chimpanzee. It's by Karen, Karen J. Fowler. And uh, it's uh, just a brilliantly imaginative uh, and ethically complex um, and it really gets into this question that somebody was asking about, you know, is this cruel or is it something else? Yes. Um, yeah, because it's so complex. It's so, so complicated. So, um, Charles, well, we still have 10 more minutes and uh, a number of the questions coming in have to do, well, want you to kind of talk about where you think we are, you know, as a culture maybe as a species at the, this moment uh, in our consciousness, awareness, and relationship to uh, non-human animals. Uh, somebody's asked, do you think, I mean, is it getting better? Or is there less captivity? Is there more, um, uh, you know, is, is the, uh, are there positive changes happening? I mean, we all know, of course, Elizabeth Colbert's book uh, or Colbert's book, uh, the sixth extinction, and that we're living through this massive extinction event of uh, uh, huge numbers of species right now in our lifetimes. Um, so what would you say on this question of our moment of history, of change, hope? Well, yeah, that's a big one. I, I, I think about it all the time. I, I, th I, think, I think it's a kind of huge paradox. I think we're kind of at our best moment and our worst moment at once. Um, so what do I mean by that? So as I, as I said earlier uh, in relation to, you know, tragically with humans, we only learn the sophistication of our fellow um, planet inhabitants by the m m manner and ways in which we break them down. Um, uh, so as, as a corollary to that, uh, you know, it's just a tragic truth that we've come to know some of our fellow, you know, inhabitants um, by by virtue of that kind of um, uh, after knowledge, like oh, oh, this is who we ruined, or this is what we're ruining. Mm. Um, so why is it about us that we have to come to that knowledge, the the more sophisticated appreciation by virtue of destruction? Um, so that makes me very depressed all a lot of the time. Because I wonder if, um, is there any way of reining us in? I think that's the question. We are exceptional. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, how do we knock ourselves repeatedly off that pedestal of exceptionalism? Being exceptional does not entitle us to exceptionalism um, and self-importance. So our only chance is to slow ourselves down. Uh, and find way to make room for the ones where we're pushing off the planet. We're not stopping every extinction, clearly. Um, that wouldn't have happened in, quote unquote, the best of world. And it's also important to remember that there really never was balance. There's this myth that's always talked about when nature was balanced, when we were in balance with nature. Nature's never really in balance. 
But there is no question about the disproportionate influence and overreach of the human species. It's unprecedented. I mean, the very word Anthropocene underscores it, right? The first epoch to be named after us. So we are having a huge effect. And I, I think on a positive side that we're more aware, we're becoming more aware of that effect, uh, the, the largeness of our footprint than ever. Now it's a matter of increasing storytelling, to go back to our earlier thing, from by armies. That's why I teach art of narrative science to young students. I think we need armies of storytellers who, who can excavate the science out there and let us know what we're stepping on um, and ruining. And then we need political, the, the right political leaders. And I think the younger political leaders coming up will have more of this consciousness than the, well, it, to call what's in our office, presidential office now, a beast is an insult to beasts. So um, I don't know what the word is, but we need to get minds like that gone and, and more engaged uh, minds. I was very personally thrilled to hear through um, a major philanthropy recently that Cory Booker is a big fan of my writing. Um, that just made me so happy that like, a politician read, read some of my work. Um, but yeah, uh, that, that's what's needed. So I, 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 I feel it's a dark time, but a potentially really bright time because there's just never been so much available knowledge. Right. And, then, you know, and then you, you know, like that documentary that Una mentioned to me about um, my octopus teacher that I just watched on Netflix and was bowled over by, like stories like that that are out there. I mean, let a child watch that. And what does that do to your brain, you know? Um, so what film can do, what education can do, what science is telling us, all those things are converging. The question is, is it too late, you know? Uh, and we, so we have to move, 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 you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, Cory Booker is also um, a uh, um, vegetarian. Yeah. And that's that's a practice, you know, that this like the silent refusal of uh, meat culture that's been growing you know, alongside the animal uh, rights and animal consciousness movement. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you'd agree with me, Charles, that, you know, what maybe where we're at is at that tipping point of a paradigm shift where you go from begin just paying attention to the problem and begin to understand the underlying system that's causing the problem. So like with uh, feminism, this happened when we stopped just worrying about sexism and we began to try to understand and analyze patriarchy. And with race, it's happened when you finally name and begin to under, uh, understand the underlying system, which is white supremacy. The underlying system uh, that we're talking about here, uh, which we need to really come to terms with and grapple with, is anthropocentrism, human exceptionalism. That ideology, until that gets kind of brought up into our faces and we begin to talk about it and think about it and understand what it does, I think that's the moment where lots and lots of things can, can shift. Um, Totally. And um, Gay Bradshaw, who, who was one of the women I profiled in that earlier piece about elephant psyche and, and culture and breakdown, and she came up with the idea of elephant breakdown and that they were suffering from you know, cross-species trauma. She talks about um, 
across uh, trans species psyche. Um, so it's not enough anymore, per what you were saying, you know, it's not enough anymore to just fence off a piece of wilderness and say, okay, don't touch. The animals will be fine there. No, animals need contiguous, connected, migratory spaces. So the man who now recently passed away, Alan Rabinowitz, the, my old Brooklyn neighbor that I didn't even know was my neighbor, who set up the Jaguar Reserve. After he set that up, he came to realize jaguars migrate from the, from the border of Mexico and the United States all the way down to Patagonia. And the only way to keep their gene pool healthy is through these long migratory routes and paths and cross and mating with jaguars from other regions. And so he set about, prior to his death, setting up the world's first jaguar highway. And to do that, he had to go to every leader of every country from Mexico down to Patagonia and get them, each of those countries, to agree to leave, leave a contiguous corridor of non-human development so that the jaguar can move along that pathway. And it's an unprecedented success environmentally. And it took, it took the rest of his life to establish. But that's the kind of cooperation we need. It can't be just one government, even though that's great in Africa, that Kenya is doing amazing things on behalf of elephants, um, as, as are some places, spots in Tanzania and others. But what we need is, you know, elephants used to migrate like whales all across, you know, their, their range. And those contiguous pathways need to be man- maintained. That's what I mean about can we restrain ourselves? Can we have our development and our fellow creatures' uh, pathways too? Are there ways of just, you know, but, but as you say, it requires such cooperation, such an understanding of our, our dominant anthropocentric, um, um, you know, mindset and ways, uh, engaging down from that. But it's happening. It's happening in pockets. It's just how do we connect the dots, you know? Yes, and I think that's a, a wonderfully uh, hopeful note on which to conclude. Although, as I said earlier, anyone who has an opportunity to listen to you wants to keep listening, and we have many questions that we weren't able to answer. Um, however, um, uh, you should also, people have asked if this was recorded, and it is, and it will be available on the uh, NYU Abu Dhabi Institute website, to which Nahid has posted uh, a link. She's also posted the link to your article on parrots. Um, I know, I know the attendees all join me, uh, Charles, in thanking you so much—not just for this talk, but for the world that you you uh, make us aware of. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.